Welcome to The Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from political scandals to love affairs, the battles waged and when citizens turn against each other. I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it by reading different ancient authors and comparing their accounts. Join us as we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Partial Historians. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Rad. And I am your other host, Dr. G. Hey, Dr. G, welcome to A History of Rome that's being told in excruciatingly painful detail. <laughs> just as the Romans would have liked it, I think. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we're just fulfilling their wishes. <laughs> yeah, their fame lives on as long as we talk about them. That is correct. So, Dr. G, last episode we were dealing with 410 BCE. Today we're going to be dealing with 409 it all makes chronological sense. <laughs> yeah, look, so far so good. I do not quibble at all with that logic. And 410 was an interesting year because we got introduced to a new location that we hadn't heard of before called Carventum. Ah, yes. We still aren't entirely sure where it is. <laughs> <laughs> the mystery remains. There are but many we, theories. <laughs> but we do think it might be part of a important strategic location that sort of forms the edge of Roman territory mm. and Hernutian territory. And obviously the Volscians and the Aquians want to get their little dirty paws all over it. <laughs> like they do everything. Indeed. That's just the way those guys are. I know. Don't they know that Rome is destined to be the superpower in this corner of the world? Not yet. Not <laughs> yet. <laughs> so what we had last time was some classic conflict of the order stuff, I think. Mm. Yeah. So we had our commander called Valerius, who ended up being quite an unpopular man. <laughs> well, how so? Is it even possible for a Roman to become unpopular? Well, he was so harsh, I think, after the conflict that had happened between the patricians like himself and the representative of the people, the tribune of the plebs, Manenius, that he kind of alienated them just, just that much. They didn't like him at all. And they really liked Manenius. Ah, uh, yes. Well, that's the kind of the way it goes at the moment, isn't it? There's a lot of backwards and forwards with this kind of class political struggle, which is really evidence as far as we're concerned, I think, the nature of our analytic sources. Livy and Dionysius of Halicarnassus, whenever, if ever, he pops back into the scene, really trying to figure out what it meant to be a Roman in this very early period mm. of history where they don't have a lot of good written extant evidence from the time in question. Mm, exactly. So basically we ended up with this situation where because Valerius had made himself so unpopular and Menenius, the tribune of the plebs, looked even better by comparison, 
that the patricians were incredibly nervous because they were sure that if they went with elections for military tribunes with consular power, that Menenius would end up being the first plebeian to actually get elected to this office, which is technically open to anyone. <laughs> Quell horror. We cannot possibly have a plebeian in charge around here. <laughs> it simply cannot be tolerated. It will not be tolerated. And therefore, we're going to have consular elections and consular elections alone. Well, this all makes sense for what comes up in 409 BCE. It does. I think it might be time to dive in. It is 409 BCE. An exciting time in Romans history, as is every year, I have to say. And I have some excellent news for you, Dr. Rad. Oh, my God. Am I about to fall off my chair? Have you rediscovered Dionysius of Halicarnassus? Oh, sadly, no. (laughs) But the Fasti Capitolini is back, baby. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you have something. (laughs) Uh, Literally two names. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know what? It's better than the big fat nothing you've been bringing to these episodes. <laughs> Oof. Oh, yeah, look, a historian is only as good as their material. <laughs> you always do your research. <laughs> I try, but it's hard to cobble together things for me at the moment. No, to be honest, I think I have the easier deal actually having something to read. <laughs> oh, look, you bring the narrative and I give you a whole bunch of names and I don't know what happens to any of them. And that, I think, is fine. That is how we're sharing the load right now. I know. Well, there there certainly are a whole bunch of names to the year 409. So why don't you tell us who they are? I shall. We have two consuls, which is very much in keeping with that fear in 410 about anybody coming into position as military tribune with consular power. You can solve that by just having consuls. So we have Gnaeus Cornelius Cossus. We have had him in our mix before. He was a military tribune with consular power in 414 BCE. And we also have Lucius Furius Medulinus. (laughs) I know a Furii back in the mix. One of our favorite Genses right now. Now, he was previously consul in 413, mm. and he is in the middle of an upwards career trajectory. Yes. He doesn't know it, but uh, foreshadowing. We on that do, front. thanks to <laughs> Broughton. <laughs> we certainly do. Thanks, We're Broughton. We're going to hear that name a lot, it looks like. Yes, we are. And we've also got, in addition to the consuls, we've got three possible tribune of the plebs. Mm. And to make things even more interesting on this front, every single name that I have attached to the role of Tribune of the Plebs is an Achilles. <laughs> At least three named possibly different Achilles in the Tribune of the Plebs mix. Which is hilarious, but it does make sense because if we're ramping up the conflict of the orders narrative, this duel between the patricians and the plebeians, who better to have in office than an Achillei? <laughs> it does present us with some problems, though. It does. So the Tribune of the Plebs position, it's been talked about in previous years. We've definitely talked about it, where it seems like 
our sources, our written sources, are assuming that there's already 10 of these characters. Yeah. We don't have any good evidence to establish that the body of the Tribune of the Plebs was that large mm. this early in Rome's history. How dare you? He's just had a very large dinner. <laughs> what do you mean there's 10 of him? <laughs> it's just one man wearing a very large coat. So we've got three possible Achillei as Tribune of the Plebs. No other group is named, but that would be a, a substantial faction within the Tribune of the Plebs if there were a group of 10. It is, but as we've highlighted, this is a family that has a very strong association with the office of the Tribune of the Plebs. They often pop up just when things get dramatic. They do. And this gives you a sense that maybe something dramatic might be on the horizon this year as well. So I guess we'll see. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing. (laughs) (laughs) If you times your Achilles by three, do you get three amounts of drama three times? (laughs) I don't know. I guess we'll find out together. The other group that I have names for are Quaestors. Mm -hmm, I thought you might say this. And in the lieu of the fact that I have very little actual evidence to provide you, what I've done is I've gone through the names of the Quaestors to try and sort of place them in the broader scheme of like what might be going on in Rome Uh, with Roman families. I always love it when you do this because, as you know, anything to do with Latin, including names, is not my strong point. And look, I don't think it's really mine either, but I do enjoy sort of building a picture for myself, like where do all these characters fit? Yeah. Because the names often end up sounding a little bit samey because the names all have the same kind of endings. Yeah. (laughs) And then after a while, you're like, I'm sure I've heard this name before, but is it a different guy? So... For just for like the sake of like trying to keep everybody straight in my head, I enjoy sort of delving into the the family side of things. Absolutely. So our first quaestor is Publius Aelius. Mm. Now Aelius is known as a plebeian gens. It is. I'm not going to give too much away. I'm just going to react <laughs> calmly. Calmly, <laughs> calmly for now. And they do have a recorded history from around about this period so the fourth century bce so jumping ahead just a few years into the next century Mm -hmm. and all the way through into the late imperial period so this is a family that has real longevity in terms of their history and legacy across generations Mm. now we might be getting this name now because of the associations the family takes on in the late Republic. Okay. <laughs> now, I don't know. I'm, I'm like, I'm just, I'm talking really slowly because I'm waiting for you to be like, I'll jump in and tell you what's going on. No, absolutely not. I'm, I'm not going to jump in at any point. I'm just going to let you talk through all of these names and then okay. I'll shock you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll prepare myself for the shock. Okay. So we have some figures like Quintus Aelius Tubero. And this is heading into the this late Republican period, who's yes. the nephew of Scipio Aemilianus. Right. And he's infamous or famous, depending on which side of politics <laughs> you're on, yeah. as an anti-Gracchan figure. Mm, okay. So somebody who's like on the conservative side of politics. Yeah. The Gracchi are very progressive and not everybody's into that. And then there's also a Quintus Aelius Tubero, same na- name, different guy yeah who is a jurist and historian 
And he wrote a 14-book Roman history from the foundation of Rome to the Punic Wars. Yeah, that's suspicious. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is really interesting because we think that this Aelius Tubro is a common source for Livy and Dionysius of Halicarnassus. Mm. Aelius Tubro himself, those books are no longer extant. Yeah. So anybody, if you find a manuscript hiding in a monastery... (laughs) Get in touch. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, get in touch. Uh, We'd be very excited. Historians everywhere would be very excited to find Aelius Tubro. But we think he's utilized by both. So there's a sense in which Livy and Dionysius are being influenced by an Aelius in their own writing. And so they probably have particular ideas about what Aeliuses are like in terms of their character and disposition. Okay. We move on. Our yes. second quaestor is Caeso Fabius Ambustus. Mm-hmm. Definitely a patrician, a fabulous Fabii. Yep. And likely related to Quintus Fabius Ambustus Vibulanus, who was the consul of 412. I was going to say, this, this name feels like more familiar territory. Yeah. yeah, and I think the expectation is that you would assume that the Quaestors would be patrician at this point. Yeah. So it is quite interesting that we do get a mix of names that seem to suggest that both patricians and plebeians were in the Quaestorship this early on. I'm not going to give in. I'm going to say my name. <laughs> I, just, I just keep putting little hints in there, hoping that you'll bite. Not taking the bait. Okay, all right. Our third quaestor is Publius Papius. Now, this gens, the Papius gens, is an italic gens. Mm. And you might think to yourself, yeah, but surely all genses are italic genses. We're talking about the Romans here. (laughs) But when we're talking about italic peoples, we're generally talking about people beyond the Romans. Because uh, we, t- we tend to classify the Romans as their own thing, even though they're clearly part of the broader Italic community. Sure. But the Papiuscans has connections to the Samnites Ooh. and Oscan speakers. Yeah. So this is thinking about the sort of the hilly region to the east of Rome, but also south heading towards Campania in yeah. the same sort of mountainous region. Yeah. This is really the Oscan speaker kind of territory. They're plebeian considered to be plebeian, and we also see the Papii family go on to hold positions of Tribune of the Plebs. So there's some spoilers for you, dear listeners, <laughs> coming up in a podcast near you. But the Samnites, I think we've mentioned them maybe just an episode or so ago. Well, they're going to become a regular feature of this podcast. <laughs> now that they've sort of entered into yeah. uh, being mentioned, they're going to continue to be mentioned. Yeah. They are going to grow to be quite important to the way the Romans understand themselves. And they must be crushed, Dr. G. <laughs> Let me make that clear. They must be crushed. <laughs> we we may have a series of conflicts known as the Samnite Wars coming your way soon yeah. in the next century. Yeah. But it does make sense. We have talked about the fact that they are possibly on the move a bit in this time period, that there's a bit bit more of them coming into Rome's orbit in this time period, which is, I think, the kind of stuff that's been coming up so far. More contacts, yeah. yeah. And I think this gives us a sense that Rome and its influence is not just constrained to Latin speakers. Mm. This idea of the foundation of the city, which 
although we might think of it as being quite mythic, this idea of Rome as a place of asylum, it does seem to be the case that people are moving around, bringing their family history with them, retaining their identity, and then also becoming integrated into a Roman social mindset and then gaining political currency within Rome. Yeah. So Rome itself has this history of cosmopolitanism that stems back really quite early into its history. Yes. It's not. So it might help explain some of the things that happen with Roman citizenship later on. Absolutely. Our last quaestor, Mm -hmm. Quintus Silius. Although the temptation to pronounce it Silius is quite high. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm disappointed in you. (laughs) You're not the co-host I thought you were. (laughs) Really missing all my opportunities. (laughs) Quintus Silius, as we shall call him. Um, (laughs) Silius is a plebeian gens. Mm -hmm. And... Well, of course, Silius, so... (laughs) This is how the patricians keep you down. Exactly, yeah. What's <laughs> in a name? Just... I'll tell you what's in a name. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous, I tell you. He's very silly and I refuse to call him anything else. <laughs> We're not really sure about this guy. I put it to you that Livy seems to be our key source here. and oh, I thought <laughs> I'd been proving that fairly emphatically for a number of episodes. I'm, I'm agreeing with you, Dr. Rad. <laughs> That was me agreeing with you. <laughs> I think I think maybe we're misreading each other. <laughs> so the trouble with this is that the Silius Gens seems to only really come into prominence in the first century BCE, mm-hmm. which is a good 300, 400 years away from where we are now. Mm. And the question might be asked, what the hell is Asilius doing this early I'll tell you in what the he's history? Doing. He's got late Republican ancestors that are like, quick, put my family like way back, guys. Like, <laughs> insert an ancestor somewhere. <laughs> Please. <Yeah. laughs> I mean, the phrase insert an ancestor, just uh, it leads me down dark paths, but I'm not going to mention <laughs> what I'm visualizing. <laughs> The Romans are always open for that, Dr. G. It's their favourite kind of foreplay. (laughs) Well, that is all that I have on the names front. I've got other things to talk about, but I think I should defer to you and what is actually going on in this year with any of these people. Can you help me? No, I think that sets us up really well, and I'm loving the family details here. Confirms a lot, I think. (laughs) Excellent. All right, so here we are. We've got consuls being elected. Now, Livy tells me that never before have the plebeians been so upset that they were not allowed to elect military tribunes, which implies that the patricians were correct to suspect that this was going to be the year when they were finally angry enough to go for a plebeian candidate over a patrician candidate, Mm -hmm. if that kind of thing were allowed. So... The plebeians, therefore, act out. They have to show their frustration in some way. And the way that they do this, Dr. G, is that for the first time, they elect plebeians to the quaestorship. I know, this is a massive (laughs) year. We've been talking about the conflict of the orders for so long. Finally, (laughs) finally, 
allegedly and probably mistakenly, <laughs> we have Libyans in the Questorship. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I mean, I was just so confused. I was like, what are these plebeians doing in here? Everybody that knows is this is not for them. them. Yeah. Now, you are correct. You are correct that there was one token patrician who was elected alongside the plebeians. That must have been a comfortable election for him. <laughs> Every time he goes into the room to sit down with the other choirs, he's like, man, this is a travesty. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And Livy does note that it is simply crazy that these three plebeians, Silius, I will adhere to your superior Latin, Silius <laughs> and Pupius, Papius, whatever his name is. <laughs> <laughs> Papius, I'm going with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it does sound wrong to say Pupius. <laughs> of fun um <laughs> it was crazy that they were selected over the youth from and i quote distinguished families which is code of course for patrician families ah <laughs> uh, yes how cruel yeah well you put in some uh, no names in here i can see that uh. <laughs> <laughs> now livy therefore had to investigate how it was that these three men finally came to be elected. And he has uncovered that it was indeed the Achillei who were behind the whole plan. They were the men who motivated the plebeians to vote in this insane fashion. <laughs> wow. Okay, so this might help explain. We don't have a complete list of Tribune of the Plebs, but the idea that there are many Achillei swaying the situation ah it's like a political coup is going on i know well as as we know a couple of years ago we were talking about an achilles who got elected to be tribune of the plebs and he was pushing what may have been a very ambitious agenda but it got cut short because there was an outbreak of illness and therefore he couldn't really do anything he was stymied dr g <laughs> Mm. And now, however, when everyone's well, bouncing around, being angry with the patricians, now is the time for them to revisit their radical program of equal rights for all. <laughs> oh, look, I wish them all the best. <laughs> I don't think I don't think the patricians are going to enjoy this at all oh, no. or let them get away with it for very long. They are not enjoying this. So... The Achillei, as we know, as a family, one of their character traits, hatred of patricians. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Passed down in mother's milk. <laughs> mm. Now, the reason, the reason why there is confusion, as you say, is that Livy does explicitly say that there were three men from this particular gens who are elected. So that's why I guess we have... The question marks in Broughton where it's like, is it Achilles, Achilles, Achilles? Is <laughs> That's what I've got. One of them is potentially Lucius, question mark, Achilles, and the others are just question mark, Achilles. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> no one who is rich should look into a mirror and say, Achilles, Achilles, Achilles three times because it could get dangerous in there. <laughs> you will summon uh, the quest for equal rights. You will, you will, yeah. And a more equitable world. So... The Achillei, I presume all of them, had apparently made a lot of big promises about what would happen if plebeians could be elected. And the plebeians, being stupid, 
just ate all of this up as they always do, according to Livy. Now, I question this account because if the plebeians did just lap up whatever promises were sent their way by tribunes of the plebs and, you know, weren't at all critical of it and all that kind of stuff, then surely we would have actually had this happening quite some time ago because they would have elected people, A, to be quaestors, but B, to be military tribunes with consular power. That would just make sense. So I think Livy's being a douchebag, Dr. G. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad that that came from you this time uh, because... I yeah this this is tricky. I mean, why the quaestorship instead of the military tribunate with consular power? Like, I can see that ultimately you would want people in all of the positions, sure. those positions, to be all available to people regardless of their family background if they can accrue the support for their election which would include definitely rich plebeian families who can spend the money to canvass and put together a a kind of election sort of promotion of themselves. But the quaestorship is at this stage very much, we think, attached to the treasury. Yep. And the idea that the patricians would let this out of their uh, sort of hands I think is a little bit questionable. Like are you going to let the plebeians get their hands on the money? Well, this is where I think you see... Livy's own time period perhaps coming in. And I think you'll see what I mean in a moment. So Mm -hmm. the way that the Achillei had persuaded the plebeians, I think, to elect someone is that they basically said, look, there's three of us serving as tribunes and we're not going to lift a goddamn finger unless you people finally vote a plebeian into office. Now, I'm just going to highlight once more. That doesn't sound like a bunch of crazy promises to me. (laughs) That sounds like a hostage situation. Sounds a bit like a threat. (laughs) Yeah, that's how they really, I think, got the plebeians over the line and got the plebeians to elect someone from their own class. I hate using that word to describe plebeians, but... I think this reflects a a big deal of our issue with this whole period of Rome's history, which is we don't understand how the society is structured necessarily, except that we know that some families are more prominent than other families. But the idea that there is a sort of a class unity doesn't seem to be borne out by our evidence. Like Livy and Dionysius have been trying to promote this idea of the class struggle because clearly the way that class works in the late Republic, it's pretty intense. Yeah. But the way that things are working here, we get the suggestion in most of our written sources that there is this struggle happening, which is failing to manifest as proper struggle because the plebeians, and I'm using my flash rabbits, (laughs) the plebeians fail consistently to vote for their class. Exactly. So I think this leaves us with a situation where maybe class isn't the best way to read any of this. No. And what Livy and Dionysus are doing is trying to shoehorn these things into a narrative. And I think then the further trouble, if we're looking even like more thousands of years ahead, is that then we get scholarship from the modern period that 
tries to read all of this within a Marxist lens as well, because Marxism is very much about class struggle. Sure. So that's a whole nother layer of sort of class confusion, if you like, because people seem to be interested in their families getting ahead. Absolutely. It's about, it's about their gens. And what we might be seeing is the real struggle that some genses, gentes in the Latin, but I always say genses because I like it. <laughs> uh, some genses are having one accruing the sort of leverage that they need in terms of popular support in order to get elected in the first place. Absolutely, yeah. And it's been a while since we've talked about this, I think, but there certainly have been times when we've been talking about consuls, I think, particularly. So it's it really has been a while, but I remember there being some names that we mentioned for consular positions, and there was definitely some question marks about whether they were actually patrician family names. Mm, yes. Yeah. And we talked about that. <laughs> so go back and listen to it because I'm not going to do it now. <laughs> so the Plebeians are feeling pretty chuffed. They mm-hmm. feel like they've really accomplished a lot, even though they haven't elected a Plebeian to the premier position in the state at this point in time. No military tribune with consular power has been Plebeian officially. They still feel like they've won, Dr. G. They've won the larger battle here. (laughs) They're chipping away at the seats of power. They'll get there. Just you wait. Yeah, and Livy kind of scoffs at this this point in time because he says, pathetic. Were they really considering what a quaestor could do? They have a pretty limited office. (laughs) Clearly, <laughs> clearly, these fools were thinking that the quaestorship was some sort of stepping stone to having plebeians as consuls and getting their own triumphs. Ha! Oh, Livy. Yeah. We're going to have a cursus honorum emerge. It's not that bad. <laughs> I know. Well, see, this is where I feel like maybe some of the late Republican vibes are kind of coming through in that. Or, or maybe he generally does know more than we do and he's just not told us very clearly exactly what a quaestor entails at this point in time. Like, I do understand that there are connections with money, but I do also understand that given the way that Livy's talked about it, it does seem to be kind of a bureaucrat. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I guess my question is as well, and I don't have a good answer to this right now, Yeah, but the quaestor shit generally, if we're thinking about it in terms of like funds and managing sort of the fiscus and things like that, which it becomes known as, maybe that's not exactly what it's doing at this point in time. Absolutely. But even so, they are somebody who is likely attached either in a military capacity going around with legions or maybe attached to the consulship. And why is there four of them right now when we only have two consuls? So there's... What do we not know? There's a bunch of missing information here as far as I'm concerned. I was like, do we have some praetors that they're attached to, but when it, they're not being mentioned? Uh, what is it exactly that Quaestors are doing right now? I'll tell you like, what they're do doing. Do we really need four of them? <laughs> they're saving patricians from a lot of red tape. I think we've established that fairly clearly. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes, the paperwork side of things. Exactly. Yeah, and how much paperwork could there be? I mean, uh the Romans, they love paperwork. <laughs> so now we get to my favourite part of the story. The patricians are 
furious. I mean, it's bad enough that the plebeians were theoretically allowed to be elected, but now they actually have to share the office of quaestor in reality? Disgusting. <laughs> Horrifying. Yeah. So now the patricians are feeling like it would actually be immoral for them to even have children because their children would have to witness the horror, the horror of seeing dirty little plebeians taking their rightful place in the world. I mean, how can a parent actually subject their child to seeing, oh my God, like the office of Questo being occupied by a plebeian? I mean, oh my God. I I would rather I know, be barren clearly than bear like witness to this slope. situation. Like, like, the plans are just going to take everything, don't you? They're going to take everything. They're going to take all the positions <laughs> before you know it. Like, what are Patricia's going to have left? I mean... They're only going to have the sacrifices, Dr. G. The sacrifices. <laughs> <laughs> guys, guys, I'm going to have to sell my Ferrari. There's no point trying to impress the young patrician ladies anymore. I know. Like, I'm not going to live in a big mansion. <laughs> I, I, I just don't think I can go. <laughs> uh, so they're very upset that all they're going to have is their roles as the Salii and the Flamans on behalf of the people, which, as you would know better than most people, are priesthood positions. They are very important because you must keep your relationship with the gods sound. But it's going to be a problem for the patricians if they do not reproduce. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess it's a bit like how some people feel about having children in a climate emergency such as we live in right now. Uh, That's how the patricians see it. They literally see it as being the end of the world, whereas we actually are contemplating the end of the world. (laughs) Yeah, it is tragic. Um, Any action you can take, dear listeners, to help preserve our beautiful home, we trust that you will take it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the patricians are prepared to take action, Dr. G. Uh, (laughs) Let us take the patrician example as our model of excellence. (laughs) Definitely, yep. Uh, So anyway, so both the plebeians and patricians are therefore in a state of complete emotional overload. The plebeians are on a super high because they are just so freaking thrilled that there are plebeians in office. And they do they do indeed see this as we finally popped that cherry. We've taken that step. This is just going to be a sign of greater things to come that they are. Yeah. I can just imagine the plebeian quaestors being like, guys, I've seen money for the first time. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are flying high. Uh, the patricians see this as complete and utter doom. The beginning of the end. <laughs> There's no other way of seeing it. <laughs> it is the end of times. Uh, it's been great while we've been here, but it's it's over now. A hundred years is all we had. <laughs> yeah. So this leads to another classic conflict, which is very similar to the one we had the year before, where the patricians are therefore absolutely 100% determined that there are going to be consular elections held. Fair enough. Uh, You've got you to keep the main power in the patrician hands. This is dire times. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's the only way that they're going to be able to continue to have sex and have children, clearly. Oh, so. God. <laughs> <laughs> the Achillei, on the other hand, are absolutely determined that it's going to be military tribunes with consular power because they do think that this is going to be the time that a plebeian is going to get elected 
into that office. We're so close, guys. We've got them into the Quaisto ship. We're all over the tribute of the plebs. Next stop, the top job. <laughs> exactly, yeah. However, as luck would have it, Dr. G, the Aquians and the Volskians enter our story. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, okay, the Aquians the- and the Volskii. All right. Yes, yes. Can oh, I pause us here just to sure. give us a sense of like where we are in the geography of things? Absolutely. Tell me, San Diego, where are we? <laughs> <laughs> I will put on my little hat. Here yep. we go. Yeah. <laughs> so the Aquians thought to be the to the east of Rome. So this is classic near where this uh, Carventum location is. We're not really quite sure. Mm-hmm. The Volscians are to the southeast, and the Hanusians are kind of wedged into the, in between those two, yep. and that's Rome's ally, so that's great. Yeah, The Hanusians are one of these Oscan-speaking peoples, and so are the Volscians. Yep. The Aquians, though, may be a slightly different language group. We then have the Latin peoples in general, which includes the Romans, yep. and they're kind of demarcated by the Tiber River, which cuts sort of Mm east-west, and the Arneo Tributary, which is a bit of a north-south tributary river. Now, the Etruscans are the neighbours to the north, anything above the Tiber. We've also got the Feliscans, who have come up a little bit so far. They're to the north and northeast and thought to be connected to the Etruscans. We've also got, likewise, a little bit further out, the Sabines, also to the northeast, but beyond the Feliscans. Mm-hmm. And everything sort of southeast beyond the Volscians is also considered to be Oscan speaking. So Rome is kind of surrounded by a whole bunch of different people who could cause them problems. And the Aquins and the Volscians are definitely the closest in the east and the southeast that are causing problems at the moment. Definitely. Yeah. So. They caused problems specifically in this year by attacking the territory of the Latins and the Hernetians. Mm, how dare yeah. they? I know. So Rome's allies, clearly. Therefore, the consuls had to raise an army and the Senate gives the order, go and conduct the levy. Now, I think you probably know where I'm going with this story. <laughs> You'd be surprised that I might not. <laughs> okay. Well... The tribunes of the plebs fight the levy because, of course, that's their that's their way of resisting and trying to, you know, get what they want, which is elections for military tribunes with consular power. So they are giving it everything they have. And they are thrilled, actually, that external conflict has arisen and therefore... Once again, the patricians need something from them and they can withhold it until they get what they want. I think they would very much understand the tactic of like using sex as a weapon in this world. <laughs> you you got to use what you got. And when you're the tribune of the plebs, resistance is key. Resisting that levy is a powerful move. Yeah. So Livy is very specific that all three of the Achillean tribunes <laughs> are getting involved here. The plebeians see them as the most noble family that they have on their side. He's like, I mean, they may as well almost be patrician, which is like saying a lot as far as the plebeians are concerned, because they're just that elite. Wow. That's (laughs) almost offensive. How dare they? (laughs) Yeah. Now, again, this is my second favorite part, Dr. G. (laughs) Two of the 
Aikilian <laughs> tribunes of the plebs take on the job of essentially tailing the consoles around Rome. Cue the pink pant, the music. They've got their sunglasses on. They've got their trench coats. They've got their slouch hats. I love it. Yeah. So, because the consoles will be going around, presumably, with some lictors and then trailing a little bit further behind. I guess that makes it easier. Surreptitiously. <laughs> makes it easier. You know, it's easier to hide in a crowd. It is. It is. Yeah. Now, the third Achillei, you might be wondering, what is he up to? Why is he not in a trench coat? Well, <laughs> his job is to stir up the plebeians. So making sure that he's, I suppose, keeping their emotions high over these sorts of issues, you know, pushing them to demand what is theirs and to act in a way that's going to support what they're trying to enact here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah. Got to have so, somebody whipping up that crowd. Exactly. Yeah. So he's on, he's on crowd control while the others are just trying to blend in. <gasps> Is he the wearing crowd. a trench coat just to keep uh, like up with the brothers? You know. <laughs> I know. I mean, I feel like he must have one in his cupboard just in yeah. case. <laughs> maybe they maybe they switch out. <laughs> All right. So the consuls are therefore prevented from raising the levy, and the tribunes are unable to get what they want, which is the election of the military tribunes, because nobody is going to give because that's just how the conflict of the orders works. Beginning to sound like a terrible stalemate while the enemy inches ever closer. Oh, tell me about it. It was looking like the plebeians were going to get what they wanted, but then dramatic news arrives. (laughs) The bulletin (laughs) on the six o'clock news. (laughs) Breaking news, breaking news. We have incoming from Rome. We've got somebody on the street. (laughs) Throwing to our local reporter now. The Equians have attacked the Roman garrison left behind at the Citadel of Carventum when the men there had left to raid, even though it was proven before that that was a dumb idea because that's how they got Carventum in the first place. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. The few men who have left behind on guard have been killed. I repeat have been killed, and it has been recaptured by the Equians. That's right. Carventum <laughs> has been lost. I repeat. Carventum has fallen. Carventum has fallen. We don't know where it is, but it's gone. <laughs> it's disappeared back behind its in- its cloud of invisibility. <laughs> yeah. Now, some more Roman soldiers had died in this battle because, of course, when they saw the Equians taking it back, they'd been like, hold it right there. <laughs> Drop it. Oi! <laughs> Drop that citadel. Uh, but unfortunately, there weren't enough of them. I guess they were pretty scattered if they were, you know, out raiding and they were maybe coming back in bits and pieces and that sort of thing. So they were killed trying to recapture the citadel or keep a hold of it. There were others out in the field who apparently were randomly killed and that sort of thing. This narrative is a little bit confusing, I suppose. But it, I think the bottom line is that the Romans had perhaps left this mostly unattended and they were killed because they were trying to get back in. It doesn't really make sense, I suppose. Yeah, it sounds like they maybe weren't on high military alert. So they were just doing the sorts of things that you do when you're a military that has to hold somewhere, but you don't have like a standing order to be in defence where you're just like, well, we need to go out foraging and we need to do some field work. We've got to eat and, you know, you, you end up doing other jobs and people are like, yeah. oh, well, we could fix this place up if we just had a nice uh, 
uh, log of wood <laughs> and we could prop it over here. Like, let's do some renovations, you know? Yeah, and if you're in for the long haul, yeah. naturally. Yeah. yeah, and so people get distracted and maybe they they got caught unawares and they weren't at all ready. And if you're not in the Citadel when the Citadel gets attacked, that's a huge problem because that's a massive defensive structure. And to get back into it, when it's being attacked already from the exterior, your chances of surviving aren't great. Yeah, absolutely. So the tribunes of the plebs with this news are begged, pleaded, (laughs) stop opposing the levy. You've got to. We're in a really bad situation right now. But they stand strong, Dr. G. They valiantly refuse and they say, you know what? We could not give two hoots about the danger that the state is in, and we don't care if everybody hates us. This is our job, and we're not budging. This is exactly what you always do, and we always give in because, oh, it's so dangerous out there, but not this time. Oh, this is a brazen position. How is this going to work out? Well, I'll tell you how it works out. It freaking works. They win. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, that that was unexpected. (laughs) I know, and quick, I know, but I couldn't really string it out any further. They win because there's no other option here, I guess. So it's decided that the next year there's going to be military tribunes with consular power being elected on the condition. (laughs) This is very important. Read the fine print. Mm -hmm. Okay, scroll down, privacy (laughs) policy, check it. No one is allowed to run for military tribunes with consular power for four or eight who had been Tribune of the Plan <laughs> that particular year. <laughs> and no Tribune of the Pleb could be re-elected the next year. So the patricians are like, right. We'll give you what you want. <laughs> none of you Achillei are allowed to serve as Tribune of the Plebs in 408, and none of you are allowed to stand for this office. That's the compromise. That's a pretty big concession i think from the patricians it is which gives a sense of just how strong the support for the Achillei has been across yep. the sort of years so far absolutely the senate are a hundred percent aiming to get this family out of play politically they want them gone and they want the people to hate them they are a hundred percent convinced that this family have the consulship in their sights you know they want to be like the first plebeian family to hold the consulship like some kind of ridiculous reward for being giant pains in the ass (laughs) well that would make them very similar to the patricians wouldn't it (laughs) i know i know right If anything, they should see the similarities. Yeah, guys, we're in this together. (laughs) These are our kinds of people, yeah. So as a result, this means that the levy can finally proceed because everybody is happy with this. The Achilliaga, check. (laughs) We will take that. And they're all getting getting ready for war. Everyone is on board. Now, there's a little bit of doubt about exactly how the campaign plays out. Livy is unsure if both of the consuls are sent to Carventum or whether one is sent out and one remains in Rome to run elections, Livy notes that he has different accounts in his sources. Does he go into further detail? No, he does not. <laughs> oh, Livy, so tantalising. <laughs> yeah. Livy can only be certain that the Romans did not win back the citadel at Carventum, but instead had to hang out there in a very long siege which went 
nowhere. Oh, okay. So yeah. they they got the army out there and it was a bit of a stalemate in the end. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. All yeah. right. Instead, the Romans decide that they're going to recapture Verugo, which is a Volscian in the Volscian area, again just to irritate their enemy. <laughs> yeah, if uh, if we can't have Conventum back, then we're definitely taking Verugo. <laughs> yeah, and this is a huge blow apparently to the Volscians and the Aquians because when they take Verugo, they get a lot of. Oh, interesting. Okay, so that's where the Volskians had taken it all out of Carventum. And sounds like maybe they just stored it in Verugo. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, okay, so it's not as clever as it previously seemed that there was no booty to be had with the original taking of Carventum. So Verugo is is the place that came up for us in 423. And the moment that Sempronius Atratinus lost a battle against the Volscians. Interesting. When the day was saved by the plebeian decurio Sextus Tempanius. Ah, uh, who could forget? Yeah. A plebeian <laughs> I, I hero. Really did, but... <laughs> <laughs> but this has changed hands a number of times now because it was recon- uh, reconquered by the Volsci in 422. And now the Romans have just taken it back again. 409. So this uh, particular location seems to be quite sought after now that people have started attacking it. And it's just sort of going either way, depending on what's going on. I think this is my hot tip. If you do time travel, dear listeners, back to this time period, because clearly, why wouldn't you? It's a delightful time to be alive. Do not choose Verugo as your place of residence I suspect it's probably pretty unpleasant well and also like it doesn't sound like a great place like Verugo rolls off the tongue badly I think I mean it doesn't I feel like it doesn't <laughs> conjure great things for me yeah and, and that's going to be people's main concern in this time period <laughs> where there's constant warfare how it rolls off the tongue exactly <laughs> it's like it doesn't sound like a holiday town <laughs> yeah like, like when you're screaming oh my god Verugo's been taken again and my children have just been massacred in the streets you're going to be concerned that it doesn't roll off the tongue easily <laughs> well you know everybody has their preferences that's all I can say <laughs> all right well at least it's not crustumerium uh, crustumerium also yeah. a classic I love the (laughs) foot disease of a town. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Delightful. Anyway, anyway, so that's all I have for this year, Dr. G, but I think you'll agree. What a year. Look, this has actually ended up being a far more significant year than I suspected it was going to be with this transition of the plebeians into the quaestorship, which was not expected at all. No. Um, Before we get into the partial pick, I just mm-hmm. want to give you a sense of the broader world politics right now sure. via a detour into Diodorus Siculus. Ooh. Mm-hmm. The man <laughs> who sometimes gets the names of the consuls correct. Yep. So Carthage is having a bit of a situation with Sicily. And uh, yes, we have talked about this. Yeah. Yes. So this has been going on for a few years now. Yeah. And ultimately. The Carthaginians want to take over Sicily. That's their dream. They want to run that whole island. Really strategic. It's going to be great. Them and the mafia. Who doesn't want Sicily? (laughs) I know. It's a very popular spot and great in summer. So very much would recommend. Yeah. But they've elected a general, Hannibal, not the Hannibal, 
And he has razed to the ground a couple of cities Ooh. in Sicily. So he's had some success. You'd be like, this okay. takeover, one by one, we're going to raise the cities and just move across <laughs> this island. But then he's getting on in age as well, this Hannibal mm-hmm. character. And he's like, look, I think, you know, I've had a couple of uh, good uh, city raisings, but I feel like I'm getting to the end of my days. And he appoints another general called Himmelcon uh, mm-hmm. to take over the campaign against Sicily. So whatever is happening into the south, this is all sort of like background sort of contextualization for the kinds of conflicts that we're going to see in maybe a couple of hundred years. <laughs> Foreshadowing. <laughs> I know, right? That's, that's all I got. <laughs> yeah. no, 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 I appreciate the, the context of the wider world because – Sometimes I feel like I can never get out of this boot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that means, Dr. G, that it is time for the partial pick. (whistles) All right, thank you very much, Igor. We appreciate your dulcet tones. (laughs) (laughs) So, Dr. G, tell us what the partial pick is all about. All right. We are going to evaluate Rome against some of its own standards. Mm. So there's going to be 10 Roman golden eagles up for grabs across five categories. So ultimately it's going to be a mark out of 50 Roman golden eagles. Okay. So our first category is military clout. Huh. Well, (laughs) it's going to be a bit of a downer, isn't it? They, it was a stalemate, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. They didn't exactly get defeated. They just gave up. <laughs> they certainly didn't really win. <laughs> no. Although was... Verugo, they took Verugo. That's true. And they did get booty and the Volskins and the Aquans weren't happy about it. So that's something. So maybe, I don't know, like a five. Yeah, because it's like win one, lose one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, it was... Not like they were really trying that hard at Carventum. It was a surprise attack, clearly. So. <laughs> <laughs> they were clearly unprepared. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, that's a five. All right. Diplomacy. <laughs> do you <laughs> negotiate so. only with your army? I think you do. <laughs> <laughs> do you use threats to get what you want? <laughs> uh, I sometimes. Uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a zero. Uh, boo. Yeah. Expansion. Mm, now, well, I guess Verugo. Yeah, yeah, but if you lose Carventum and you gain Verugo. <laughs> you end up it, at a zero. Is that a zero? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like do we start at 10 and it goes down to a five? It's hard to say. Or is it win some, you lose some? Or do we need to know exactly how much territory was taken versus how much territory was lost? Oh, God. How are we ever going to figure that out? We don't even know where Carventum is. <laughs> it's a tough one. No, look, I think it's all fairly small scale at this point in time. So I don't know. I feel like... Huh. I think we can give them a one for getting okay. Verugo, but I don't, I don't okay. think we can give them heaps because they did lose Carventum, so they must have lost something as well. Yeah. I mean, Verugo was a spite capture. <laughs> mm, I caught Verugo. It doesn't sound good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a one. All right. Our fourth category is Weirtus. No. <laughs> Good old-fashioned Roman masculinity. I mean, look. Are the Achilles demonstrating it? I was going to say, I mean, kind of. Not like, hiding in trench coats, but. <laughs> no. 
Uh, to be honest, if I could give points for that, I would. <laughs> we might need to update the categories as we get further on. <laughs> I said it. I said a monkey. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, I feel like the Achillei are actually kind of demonstrating weird to us, but it's not the kind of weird to us the patricians would particularly admire. But it is, ac- it is taking action. It is standing strong, but it's not involved in obviously like any sort of armed conflict per se yeah it kind of sits in a slightly different category like and Mm. i think the trouble for us at this point is that if we had say a big like sort of set speech from livy for one of these characters we'd get to see how they position the arguments and we might be able to make a case for weird to us with those kinds of arguments that the true that were provided but it's actually a massive missed opportunity isn't it yeah, look, I don't know why Livy doesn't go down that track a little bit more often. <laughs> I'll tell you why, because it took us forever when Dionysius did that. <laughs> well, it was part of Dionysius's charm. He was always it keen is, to show is. off his rhetorical skill. And that yeah. gave us a lot of leverage for thinking about Weirtos. But when we don't have those speeches, yeah. it does mean that we have to base it solely on the action that is recorded and passed on to us. And sometimes that's a little bit more ambiguous and it's not necessarily clearly weird to us. Yeah. This just in. A long speech was made for which I have no evidence. <laughs> <laughs> you could do the old Thucydides on it. It's like, I'm just going exactly. to put it, the words into their mouth that I thought they should say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, what do you expect? I, I, I live in an ancient time, guys. There's no recorder. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't there. Uh, I'm doing my best. And I don't know anybody who was, all right? So just back off. Shh. <laughs> uh, just listen to my story. Yeah. <laughs> doing the best that I can, and it's going to be as bloody accurate as you can get for this yeah, time. Yeah, this is, this is amazing journalism, <laughs> given the circumstances. Our right. last category is the citizen score. Well, I think this is a category for us today. I mean, the plebeians are absolutely thrilled. <laughs> They're finally quaestors. Look at them go. I know. I mean... There's not much else that could be better apart from being a military tribune or a consul, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> you know, one step closer is one step closer. And yeah. there's lots of them in the quaestorship. There's a really strong sense of the Achillei looking after the little guy by delaying yeah. the levy. Now, there yeah. is a point where that... Through threats and being incredibly <laughs> stubborn. <laughs> but there is also a point where delaying the levy can lead to the risk of the citizens if the enemy gets too close to Rome. So it's a fine line. (laughs) It is, but I think that it's, it doesn't seem like it's that close. No, it seems fine. We don't know where these places are, so they can't be close to Rome. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. It's a fine line between pleasure and pain, but yeah. (laughs) Indeed. Yeah, Yeah. I I feel like the people would have been more freaked out if they actually thought they were in danger because if we've learnt nothing from Libby's account, the Romans actually panic quite easily when they hear bad military (laughs) news. Yes, and there is a tendency for the plebeians to capitulate on their demands as soon as they think there is a risk to their lives, which is 
Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's what I mean. Like, the minute we ever hear of, like, a military disaster being reported back in the city, they lose their freaking minds. <laughs> They're running around all over the place. The person who's left in charge is like, holy crap, how am I going to get this crowd under control? So the fact that they're not doing that implies I'm to me that's I'm imagining the Romans as part human, part chicken. <laughs> <laughs> and well, that's, that's how the Plebeians are portrayed, I think, in Livy. <laughs> uh, and there's just chickens running around everywhere in the city. <laughs> yeah. So, look, I feel like I'm going to give this an eight. Ooh. Yeah. All right. I'm not going to quibble with that. I think uh, the citizens uh, need uh, some bucking up. So happy to... <laughs> <laughs> you know they've had a good run this year let's face it yeah i mean yeah i, I, I don't really see much that is bad about this uh, yeah I, I i'm i'm happy for them and you know what i'd also like to say dr g once again because i'm a broken record on these sorts of matters but as fictitious as the events of 409 may in fact actually be <laughs> it is heartening to read about stories where people are willing to, you know, put it all on the line in their protest movement and to see how when you actually put your mind to it and you have unity, you can accomplish your goals, no matter how impossible it may seem. I sense that you're making a bigger claim about the world today through the power of what we can learn from history, and I applaud you. There is a huge <laughs> people power and strength in community and community action, that is how you make change. Absolutely. I mean, they have done studies on this, which obviously don't directly apply to Rome, but looking at all sorts of you know, people power moments like civil rights movements and people petitioning for political rights and that sort of thing. And it's shown that you actually only need a very small percentage of a population to be on board with something but you just need like a, you just need to get to like a certain level, a certain small level for people to be on board, to be supporting it, to be campaigning it, to stand unified, to actually achieve change. And I think that we should throw this particular example into that basket because, of course, the patricians aren't on board. In fact, I would wager that not even all the plebeians are on board because, as we've highlighted before, they are not like this unified class. Okay, there are people that have differing interests. I mean, where the hell are the other tribunes in this story? Who knows? They don't even get a mention. But They don't. It's amazing that with the ones that we have named, we're still talking about presumably a small group of individuals yeah. with sway. So, yeah, pretty amazing stuff. Absolutely. Don't lose hope, guys. Get involved with some groups. Show people that you care. Talk about it. <laughs> If, if the history of the early republic has shown us anything, talking about it endlessly eventually will get you somewhere. It will. As long as you combine it with stubbornness. Be resilient, know your values, and fight Absolutely. for what is good and right. Indeed. All right, so that means, Dr. G, that we have got the Romans finishing 409 on a grand total of 14 golden eagles. Actually, that's pretty impressive. It's not bad. It's been a lot worse. It has. Ah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, Rome, you're going up in my estimation. Yeah, and, and we've obviously got potentially a very exciting year ahead of us, Dr. G, because with military, tribune with consular power, elections lying ahead and a plebeian quaestor, in fact, sorry, I shouldn't say a, several plebeian quaestors elected in 409, 
What does the future hold? Oh, well, we will find out soon. We certainly (laughs) shall. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Partial Historians. You can find our sources, sound credits, and an automated transcript in our show notes. Our music is by Bettina Joy de Guzman. You too can support our show and help us to produce more engaging content about the ancient world by becoming a Patreon. In return, you receive exclusive early access to our special episodes. And today we'd like to say a special hello to some of our Patreons who entered our Saturnalian giveaway. Alex, AJ, Dr. Kate, Dendrio, Kylie, Vincent Jorgensen, Dana Gray and Aras Lagerson and of course Kyle DeCant. However, you can also support our show by buying us a coffee on Kofi. However, if those coins just aren't jangling in your pockets these days, please just tell someone about the show or give us a five-star review. And that goes for our book as well. Until next time, we are yours in ancient Rome.